Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Jill, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time during the conference, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would like now to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may begin. Thank you, Jill, and greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. In particular, welcome to all those who are back uh, and who've participated in Author in the Room before, and welcome to those who are first-timers. We hope you enjoy the call, and we hope you decide to join in in future calls. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you can join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, or what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, the next call being Wednesday, February 20th. The article for that call is Trends in Opioid Prescribing by Race slash ethnicity for patients seeking care in U.S. emergency departments by Dr. Mark Pletcher and colleagues appearing in the January 2nd issue of JAMA. So please join us for that call. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage each of you to do so as well. Today our featured author is Dr. Ian Williamson, first author of the article Antibiotics and Topical Nasal Steroids for Treatment of Acute Maxillary Sinusitis, a Randomized Control Trial, published in the December 5th issue of JAMA. Dr. Williamson is a British General Practitioner and Senior Lecturer at Southampton University on the south coast of England. He graduated from Edinburgh University in the mid-70s and has been active in, and involved in both patient care, academics, and clinical trials since that time. He was a founding member of the European Respiratory Infection Family Physicians Network and is a senior editor is a section editor for the Cochrane Ear, Nose, and Throat Disorders Group. He's a fellow of the Royal College of uh, He's a fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners and the Royal College of Surgeons. Welcome, Dr. Williamson. Um, good evening. Uh, I was going to say good afternoon, Chuck. <laughs> That's right. For yeah. Dr. Williamson, who is located in England, it's about uh, 7 p.m. his time right now. So we appreciate you taking your evening to be with be with us, Ian. My pleasure. Uh, as the moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Williamson's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author or authors about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, Dr. Williamson and I will help you translate what's in his paper into changes applicable on your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Williamson will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings, the, the article's findings. We'll then take a few minutes to draw out some of the implications for real-world practice, real practice setting and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. I want to stress how important your uh, participation is in these calls. We frequently have a large number of lines called in, but not a lot of questions or comments, and your questions and comments are really uh, important. Not just your questions, uh, but your experiences in well, as well that have to do with performance improvements uh, related to this topic. Uh, 
this is a great forum in which to get clarification on it on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take to use this information towards improved patient care. Uh, there are approximately 90 lines uh, called in connected to the call today, generally with several individuals per participating line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call and on a background basis only. One other note before we get started, this call is being recorded and is made available on the, both the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming uh, uh, audio or podcasts. You can go to both of the websites and uh, get those uh, podcasts if you'd like. Uh, prior calls are available as well. Uh, with that, let's get started. Again, let me introduce Dr. Ian Williamson, who will provide an overview of the article. Dr. Williamson. Okay, thank you very much, Chuck, and uh, thank you for the uh, privilege uh, to be and the opportunity to be able to present um, my work from the JAMA article. Um, what I'd like to do is just basically uh, summarize the uh, little bit of background about acute sinusitis and um, then give you a few more details from the paper, what we found in particular, um, maybe flag a few limitations with the trial, but then hopefully lead into uh, some implementation points and some uh, key messages to think about. So I don't know if any people listening have had acute sinusitis. I can remember as a student having it. It wasn't very pleasant. Uh, we've had previous uh, shadow prime ministers off for six weeks from government with sinusitis. Um, so it is a very... Um, it can be a very unpleasant condition, but it is usually uh, self-limiting. Anyhow, so in the UK, a uh, family physician will see about somewhere 15 to 40 uh, cases per 1,000 pati patients per year on his list. And uh, in the UK, as I think in America, about 92% will receive an antibiotic to treat it. I think uh, the figures from the States are 85 to 98%. So it's almost not quite a universal feature uh, associated with the diagnosis. And in the UK, it's costing about £10 million a year. And I think from your figures, somewhere in the region of um, $2.4 billion. Um, very briefly, uh, just to uh, a picture of the, uh, back, um, the causes of sinusitis, um, bacteria are one important cause, but of course there are many others, viruses, allergies, fungi, um, the bacteria can be many and varied, the viruses, usually head colds that progress in about half to 2% of cases onto sinusitis, so um, quite a, a mixed etiology, no, by no means all cases are bacterial, and about 50% might, from some primary care studies, that's family practice type studies, um, have uh, had the diagnosis confirmed as uh, as uh, bacterial, so it's by no means all, all cases uh, of, of patients that go and see their family physician. Um, so why did we do the trial? Well, our group here in Southampton are looking at a range of common respiratory illnesses, the ketotitis media sinusitis, and looking at um, the value of antibiotics. And the messages that from our research tend to be um, fairly broadly similar, so there is a case for linking sinusitis in with these other common respiratory infections. Um, there's been a good evidence review done, in fact many good evidence reviews, but the one in particular that we've, we've highlighted in our paper was the Cochrane meta-analysis which showed 
limited benefit of antibiotics, even from specialist-based studies. Uh, confidence intervals uh, either go through one or touch one, so that shows you can't be confident that antibiotics are effective for sinusitis. Uh, from the current evidence base, um, even from secondary care studies, I think Cochrane used five main studies, mostly secondary care, but some uh, more community-based populations. And primary care studies, if anything, have tended to show no or smaller effects on antibiotics even than Cochrane has. Um, also, we thought we'd have a look at whether nasal steroids work because, again, there have been some reviews to suggest that steroids may be of benefit, topical steroids. Um, diagnostic issues are important, uh, and how you label a condition is, is, is very important, and that's probably got key implementation aspects to it, how you uh, diagnose it and what you call it. Um, Williams, in, uh, uh, a well-known physician from the States, said that sinusitis is being overdiagnosed and probably therefore overtreated in routine practice. And to overcome that particular problem, we, we, we got a paper uh, from Sweden which showed that certain clinical criteria, symptoms and signs, were found to be more predictive of bacterial infections. And because we wanted to test whether antibiotics were effective or not, we thought, well, let's try and avoid some of the criticism that we're just treating viral infections by really selecting out those cases most likely to have a bacterial infection. So we used the bergen karrenfeldt criteria, which we explained in the paper their various predictive values. And they're not perfect, but they're probably the best that we've got. Uh, in as clinicians, and um, we used those to identify a group who would, we thought, most likely respond to antibiotics. Um, so our hypotheses were, are antibiotics effective um, for acute sinusitis in a sort of walk-in population, a sort of ambulatory population we see in family practice in the UK, and also are nasal, nasal steroids effective? So I won't go into the methods in too much detail, but basically it was a factorial design, and our interventions were amoxicillin, um, 500 milligram tablets, uh, three times a day for a week, and we used um, topical steroid, budesonide, at the dose of 200 micrograms into each nostril, so that's a daily dose of 400 micrograms a day for 10 days. Uh, we basically looked at adults, so we can't really generalize to children from our study. Um, they're 16 years of age and over. They have, all had to have two or more Berg criteria with an overall reliability of 86%. And um, we excluded, particularly of interest, would be recurrent sinusitis. In other words, those who'd had more than two attacks of sinusitis in the past year. So we're not looking as... Uh, other research has done at recurrent or chronic sinusitis, but acute, typical acute sinusitis. And we did that to try and, again, ensure that our population was more likely to be bacterial. Um, our sample, 58 practices from the south of England, uh, 74 uh, family physicians recruited, in total 240 patients into the study who got spread out. They were randomized into the four, um, four groups of antibiotics and steroids and their various combinations. And um, 
when we got our results, we analyzed for interaction because it's a factorial trial. We didn't find any evidence of a, of a treatment interaction, but we did find evidence of an interaction between uh, how unwell the patient was at baseline and how well they did with nasal steroids. Um, but our main outcome measure was the proportion of people cured at day 10, and um, that's just worth dwelling on because that is the main, the main thing we found, is that our adjusted odds ratio for antibiotics didn't favor control or treatment. It was uh, an adjusted odds ratio of 0.99 with a confidence interval of 0.57 to 1.73, so it's pretty close to the to 1, as you'll get in many studies. And the same for steroids, the adjusted odds ratio was 0.93, with again a confidence interval of 0.54 to 1.62, neither favoring treatment nor control. So really a null result for both those. Um, if we looked at um, patients' reported symptom scores, which we assessed on a diary, a patient self-report diary, and then by 10 days, whatever arm of the study you're in, you followed a similar trajectory, and by 10 days, 70% um, uh, of people were better, 30% of people were still symptomatic. Um, but the trajectories for cure were pretty close, and you can hardly get a matchstick in between the lines there. Um, then if we look at um, a thing called total symptom severity score, um, the, uh, which is a sort of uh, conglomerate score of all the symptoms which, uh, which were, uh, we felt to be important um, in sinusitis, uh, and which is usually, because it's a continuous outcome, it's fairly sensitive. Um, we were powered for 0.4 of a standard deviation uh, change in that score. And again, there was no, um, again, the trajectory, if you imagine the graph in front of you, the, the sort of fall off uh, of, you know, on, on those lines is, is pretty close again, with no real daylight in between the lines. So no real difference. So cure by antibiotics defined by total symptom severity with their median values uh, really showed no differences, and we used various statistical techniques on that. Um, to show, but there was no significance there. So our main conclusions were that amoxicillin is not effective in treating acute sinusitis, uh, certainly in the sample that we saw, and budesonide, which is a topical steroid, is not effective in treating acute sinusitis. But we did find evidence of an interaction with baseline severity, which suggests that for those patient, patients whom the family physician thinks are likely to have a bacterial sinusitis, um, providing they're not too unwell, they've, they've got more of a chance of responding to nasal steroids. But if they're pretty unwell, if they're... Um, I don't know, uh, bedridden or they've got a high temperature or they're fairly poorly, as we'd say over here, then um, there's probably um, not, there may even be a negative uh, effect of steroids in that worst group. So steroids are going to work. They're probably going to work in those who are less severely, um, less severely ill. So those are a sort of very brief overview of the study and its main findings, and I'd be very happy indeed to have your comments on that and your suggestions and, and, and comments and so on. Um, in terms of implementational issues, I think 
probably keeping a simple message that um, antibiotics aren't effective or aren't likely to be effective within our um, confidence limits. Um, they're not likely to be effective as a treatment for acute sinusitis. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's a message which at the moment is slightly flying in the face of current practice. I, I mean, over 90% getting an antibiotic, and yet uh, from our study, no demonstrable value for uh, patients from receiving it, and certainly plenty of potential harms from receiving antibiotics. So I would have thought keeping to a simple message um, and also not overstating the case from a single study is very important, but seeing it in the context of other studies and also seeing it in the context of possible subgroups that may benefit, um, but nonetheless for the majority of patients there isn't going to be benefit and I think that message is something that maybe uh, something that could be got across or a question mark raised against current practice where antibiotics are so readily given. So rather than go into any more details at this point, I think just to keep it simple at, at that level and then and then take comments or questions or whatever. Wonderful. Thank you, uh, Dr. Williamson. I really appreciate that. Well, your work really is directly applicable to challenges in clinical care. As you know, you and I are both practitioners, as are many of the folks out on the call, and we look forward to their comments. A few, a few things I might ask you as we get started here. As you said, you know the Cochrane reviews have not been particularly positive even before you did your your study. What was unique about the study that had not been done in prior? Uh, articles, or was it the setting that was unique about your particular investigation? Well, um, I think the setting, it's a large study for the setting for primary care, for family physician, a sort of community uh, study. Um, I think in that context, it's unusual that um, we used clinical criteria which we think are as predictive as x-ray uh, diagnosis of sinusitis, according, um, and that fits with the American guidelines, that the clinical criteria are um, likely to uh, have aided us in targeting the group most likely to respond to antibiotics. If you argue, well, what about viral infections, you wouldn't expect antibiotics to work in those groups. So, so if in the sort of worst-case scenario, the group most likely to have... Um, a bacterial infection, you can't find a response from antibiotics, and that's a slightly more emphatic message than if you've just selected patients with prolonged rhinitis or um, more general, um, maybe less specific symptoms than the ones we chose. Um, probably apart from that, it's uh, you know it's just it's just another study, but uh, we think it's interesting in the sense that uh, we would have expected to find an effect in our population. I very much appreciate the real-world uh, setting in which you did the research, and uh, it's, it, I find it encouraging always to see those studies that are done in sort of an uh, averaging uh, practicing uh, setting, so that's fantastic from that perspective. 
Well, there are a lot of implications for uh, for the practitioner and a lot of implications of your research. Uh, I've been using it very actively in my conversations with patients, as you and I have discussed already, and yeah. our preparation. It's, it's very useful from that perspective. But we could take this article from a number of different perspectives, and it would be useful to get the input of those who've called in. And so we Absolutely. want to turn now to yeah. their questions. Right. Uh, and so we will ask Jill to, uh, to uh, uh, the operator to go ahead and tell us who's in queue and give us instructions as to how you might uh, ask a question and as I said before, uh, give comments either on the research or, or on how you are using this data uh, to more optimally manage uh, sinusitis. Jill? Yep. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you are using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if there are any questions, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone phone. Standing by for questions. So as we wait for folks to get in uh, line uh, uh, in, uh, let's just have a little conversation about uh, how we might use this data. One of the things we can do from a systematic perspective is obviously encourage people, encourage our fellow clinicians to read the article and to change their behavior. We know that's a pretty weak intervention from a, a systems perspective and from a quality improvement perspective. What strategies have you used or what strategies would you suggest to reduce antibiotic prescribing in this condition? Well, uh, one that I've been involved with is where I've actually gone around to local practice and given talks, sort of um, uh, open, face, you know, sort of face-to-face -face, uh, lectures where there's <clears throat> pharmacists present as well. The pharmacists, the um, uh, people very interested in sorts of um, health information that's shared with patients and, and also in terms of trying to get consistent messages out between the different groups of health professionals. Um, so I think when you've got a focused group of effort locally like that, you're more likely um, to, to get some sort of... Um, Response, and particularly when you can take on board people's um, concerns or expectations about what's going on, get people on board with, with what you know. How do you use the evidence base? How do you address this issue or that issue? Uh, and hopefully, by getting people to flag up the issues, you can then talk them through and uh, and make make progress and suggest strategies for for dealing with things. For example, just very briefly, one thing that we um, that we hit on um, is sharing natural history with patients. It's very important that they they know the you know this is an illness that's going to last 10 days, 14 days, or whatever after they've seen you, um, uh, and so that they're not then you know, they can adjust their expectation according to their knowledge of the natural history, so that it's equal with the professional knowledge of the of the natural history or the use of terms. For example, if we say you've got acute sinusitis, then there's almost an inbuilt expectation for an antibiotic. But if you said you've got a bad head cold um, or you've got purulent rhinitis, then maybe the expectation is a little bit less. So I think use of language and um, share, sharing information on a number of levels is, is quite crucial. I really like that training and how to talk to patients. I think that's, uh, those are really great suggestions. Just 
talk not about sinusitis, but to talk about a head cold, yeah. uh, is a really great you know, sort of change in language. Uh, what, uh, is there data that gives us guidance on why physicians are prescribing? Are they prescribing because they just think antibiotics are necessary or useful, or are they prescribing out of convenience because they just don't want to have the conversation with the patient and, and uh, they're succumbing to patient expectations? I would guess a little bit of, of both, Chuck. I, I would think that certainly there is some evidence, suggestive evidence from, I'd say from Cochrane, which tends to show that looks like there may be a, an effect there, but we don't know how clinically useful that effect is uh, in selected populations. So people are acting in line with an evidence base which now looks as though it's changing a little bit um, uh, towards showing that antibiotics are perhaps a little bit less effective than we thought they were. So people are partly acting in accord with the evidence, uh, but also I think you're quite right that people... Um, and there's a sort of mythology now around antibiotics, and uh, it's very, you know, brave the person who tries to interfere with that. I mean, people have got it so, the expectations are so strong now for an antibiotic with a certain diagnosis. And, right. and it's irrational. It's irrational in the sense that it's not, it's not squaring up with the evidence that's coming through. Great, Joe. Once again, if there are any further questions, please press star, then one on your touchtone phone. And if we have none, then Ian and I have plenty of things we can talk about. Um, Ian, one of the things I've been uh, most impressed with uh, is the effect of um, uh, the effect of the media to either positively or negatively affect uh, in mass uh, people's thinking uh, and. Uh, their perspectives on on care. One great example in this regard, I think, at least what I'm experiencing uh, here, is with MRSA becoming such a problem uh, and with MRSA being in the news, it does seem to me that, uh, in general, the population or community has a greater sensitivity to antibiotics, so it's now easier to have a conversation with people about antibiotics or people really aren't looking for antibiotics when they come in anymore, although we may think that they are. What they're really looking for is reassurance uh, that uh, nothing bad is going to happen. Uh, and so the MRSA uh, issue, is, as much as it's been publicized, actually is, I think, playing to our favor in this regard and that people actually aren't as enthusiastic, don't appear to be as enthusiastic, uh, in general anymore about getting antibiotics and appear to have an increased level of caution about antibiotics. Are you are you seeing the same thing? Uh, well, uh, yes, yes we are. I mean, MRSA is a big topic over here in the UK, and I think we are seeing a fall off, uh, for example, with acutotitis media now, um, since our government um, sort of uh, gave out various messages about antibiotics in the community. Uh, we're seeing less people coming forward uh, with acutotitis media and less demand um, generally from the public. In fact, it may almost be the public who are taking the lead because um, uh, doctors are prescribing at a fairly constant rate and the public seems to be getting the message that, well, antibiotics don't always work. So I think maybe um, that's an indication that the media and the public have got a fairly crucial role to play in uh, in. Um, in sort of balancing, you know, balancing what's going on um, in terms of managing, uh, you know, who manages the, the, the respiratory problem. 
Yeah, very much so. And I think that changing public expectation is one that we all should think about and how to leverage that, not that MRSA is obviously the emergence is, is obviously uh, a good thing. It's not. Yeah. Uh, it's being driven by a lot of antibiotic use, which we know. Uh, yeah. Patient expectation is, in fact, I think, largely driven by our inadvertent uh, behavior in the past where instead of talking to patients about whether they really need antibiotic, physicians have been and other clinicians have been very quick to prescribe antibiotics. So without saying it, uh, our actions are saying you need antibiotics for these conditions. So we've conditioned our populations, both in the U.K. and, the, and in the United States, to believe that they actually need antibiotics. Yeah. And, uh, and here we have a, a, a completely a separate issue, MRSA, which has been uh, raised in terms of its awareness in the community, and it's, it's helping us actually have these conversations more easily. So it's a very interesting, I think, social dynamic that those who are involved in public health or those who are in health systems or medical practices that seek to, um, to change the, the prescribing patterns in this regard need not think that our only intervention is just one-on-one conversations with patients. I think we really do need to think differently about how we use the media, how we use newspapers, and other things like that to begin to get people to think differently about uh, their their own personal use of antibiotics and the attitudes that they come in with. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to come across as anti-antibiotic. I mean, they're a great invent, um, discovery by Alexander Fleming, and we're all very grateful for his work and what's resulted, but we want to keep it that way. And, I mean, the evidence is with MRSA that it's not going to stay that way um, forever, and um, and therefore we've got to do something um, in terms of more judicious use of antibiotics, particularly in the community where probably a lot of the indications aren't robust enough to justify their use. Uh, great. Jill? We have one question. It comes from the U.S. Navy. Please go ahead. If you could just tell us your uh, your name and where you're located, that'd be great. Okay, hi. I'm Lieutenant Anderchuk, and I'm located in Bethesda, Maryland, at the National Naval Medical Center. And my question is just about um, looking at the. I'm a pharmacist as well, and looking at the resistance rates among the children. And this study primarily looks at people above the age of 15. Are there any reasons why the results of the study? Um, would not be applicable to children, or um, do you think that the effects would be similar in both settings or just clinically? Is there any, would there be any reason to take that into account? And also, my second question is, on the patients in this study, did you um, look at the duration that the patient's symptoms were prior um, to being seen by the doctors? Okay. Okay, do you want me to take that, take that straight away? Please. Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm sorry the line was a little bit bad. I hope you can hear me. But I, uh, the first part, I think, was about generalizing to children and the second about prior duration. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, the, um, I mean, we can't generalize to a population we haven't studied. So it's just simply not, we can't do that from, the, from what, you know, our sample wouldn't uh, allow that. But what I can say is that from my limited knowledge of, of the literature, I think there's a Cochrane review by Morris. Um, he looked at five, uh, it's probably updated by now, but five uh, review, uh, trials in children, and um, the effects aren't, um, the, effect, the number needed to treat is something like six, which isn't, which isn't great, 
Um, and also, I think the American Academy of Family Physicians have also recommended um, um, sort of uh, not, not prescribing straight away because most children, it's a self-limiting illness, um, and, and they'll get better fairly quickly, actually, in sinusitis fairly quick in children, uh, and they get better without, um, you know, an early intervention. Um, but obviously, things like orbital cellulitis, puffy eyelids, uh, uh, you know, they're more at risk of eye complications and um, uh, ethmoid uh, abscess and things like that. So it's still um, the case that you've got to um, your clinical skills in assessing for those rare but important complications are still in, uh, obviously crucial, uh, but, but not necessarily relying on antibiotics for children, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, secondly, um, about prior duration, well, it's a very, very interesting question. I know in the States you're very interested in that in your guidelines, which I think recommends seven days prior duration before treatment. Um, in the UK, I think our rather out-of-date guidelines suggested we only need to wait three days. Um, in our study, we didn't show any um, predict, uh, predictive response to treatment by prior duration. So. Um, it, it's, not, uh, it's not a predictor of treatment response. Um, and I, I have a feeling that other primary care studies are, are similar to ours, which is perhaps a little bit disappointing uh, because it, it, it would be very good to have um, pointers to which ones you should be treating. Um, you know, we may be wrong on this one. We may not. I don't know. But uh, in our study, we didn't find prior duration was a predictor. Okay, thank you. Thank Guide, you. Thank you very much for your questions. Guidelines in the U.S. vary. Uh, one uh, source that many, uh, at least internists and family physicians treating adults use is the Sanford Guide for Medical Therapeutics, which recommends uh, two weeks of symptoms with uh, purulent nasal discharge, fever, and uh, facial pain or headache, um, which is somewhat relatively similar to your criteria used in your paper. Yeah. Uh, one of the challenges is, I think, that we've had in this, when we, when we look at upper respiratory tract infections in general, uh, is the uh, clinical impossibility of distinguishing what is viral from what is bacterial. Uh, but I think it, it's worth saying that even in really sophisticated settings where they've tried to do that, they've either done um, uh, you know, nasal taps or they've tried to distinguish viral bronchitis from bacterial bronchitis, that um, my understanding is that even when you try to do that in a sophisticated way and even when you believe that something is bacterial, that still the evidence is very, very weak uh, that the antibiotics do any good. And I think that data gives me even more pause uh, about the utility of antibiotics or maybe it just gives me more confidence in uh, the immune system and the immune system's ability to take care of these relatively routine infections that we get. Thoughts on that? Yes, no, I, I agree. I think um, I think if you go down the route of um, you want to go down a very rational route about antibiotics, you really need a, diag a near patient diagnostic test, which will tell you it's a bacteria or it's a virus. You know which bacteria it is, and therefore which antibiotic you need to give. But no such near patient tests are available, so you're left with a pragmatic approach, of which I think you've. You've given a very good summary, and one which I would uh, I would share that view. Um, I've had um, I don't know if it's interesting, but um, uh, the 
in terms of um, their Balint, who is a sort of uh, psychotherapy background, talked about prescribing the drug doctor as a sort of placebo effect. But um, so, I mean, you, it's possible where you're, you're, you're doing your risk assessments for somebody with a sinus problem, and that's important, and you're advising on symptom management, and that's the other thing you do. But <clears throat> I think it's useful to say things like, you know, you have a bad head cold that may take some time to clear. However, your body will heal itself, and during this time you may wish to da, 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 while you're getting better. So I think a positive approach, a positive form of words, uh, something we found in some of our earlier studies, um, seems to result in high satisfaction for patients, um, and also it endorses, if you like, uh, masterly inactivity as regards antibiotics. And you could give a delayed antibiotic prescription, um, and that also is is, um, is associated with fairly high levels of satisfaction, by which I mean you can give a prescription for it, but say, look, I think you're going to get better without the need for this prescription. However, here it is. I'm empowering you. Cash it in when you like. But actually, I think you won't need it. Um, you know, you will get better if you just take these symptomatic treatments. And, and um you know, in about a week or so, you should be a lot better. Um, and um, but it does that then empowers the patient to uh, cash in the prescription. And depending on how you do it, um, uh, with mixed success, but often a lot of these patients then uh, feel because they have power uh, to cash or not to cash the prescription in that they um, they don't subsequently cash in the prescription, don't use the antibiotics. Yeah, very and much. That, that's good. I think very much of it is about that power thing and, and uh, people's feeling uh, or anxiety about access to things that they think they might need. And, and once you take that anxiety away, they they frequently tend to behave very differently than we think that they might. We use that tactic quite a bit to give people a prescription uh, so that they have it, uh, but encourage them not to use it unless uh, you know, uh, unless things turn turn worse. And, and the majority of time, they in fact don't use it. And there was in, there was a study. I think it was a JAMA study. Uh, about a year and a half ago, which looked at upper respiratory tract infections uh, with three groups. One they gave antibiotics to, one they gave a wait-and-watch antibiotic to, you know, where they the patients could fill it if they wanted to, and one they, they did not give antibiotics to. And the four groups were absolutely identical in their outcomes. Right. right. Well, one of the things that we uh, do need to, I think, get more sophisticated about is uh, the outcomes that we're looking for uh, in many cases like this, and in fact uh, treating sore throats, which is a, a, a similar, probably a very similar converse, conversation about treating pharyngitis, yeah. is uh, we have this belief that the antibiotics are, uh, in our population has a belief that the antibiotics make them better much more quickly, whereas even the positive studies show that antibiotics might make people uh, better 12 hours earlier than they otherwise might have. The magnitude of the effect is really uh, quite marginal, even in positive studies, and I think that that gives us pause. And then we could ask the question whether, you know, just sort of uh, shortening the duration of something that's very common that otherwise would take care of itself really even should be a criteria, even if antibiotics work to shorten the duration a day. Is it worth the social downside of both the cost and the potential resistance versus uh, if antibiotics were effective in mitigating some major adverse effect, which we have no evidence that they do at all, uh, yeah. that would be a different strength of uh, sort of strength of the study. 
uh, and uh, teasing those things, those things out are are not easy. In this case, it does neither. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, quite interesting. And again, uh, uh, a good, I think, grist for us to start thinking about how we talk to our patients differently. Uh, Jill, is there anybody in queue? We have no questions at this time. Well, one of the things that would be great to, I think, get uh, the participants' feedback on, uh, people tend to be shy in terms of tuning in and <laughs> giving us their comments or questions, and we would encourage you to do so. Go ahead and hit star one if you have a, even a comment to make. Is I'm interested in what systematic uh, uh, interventions people have made to try to change antibiotic um, uh, prescribing. In our practice, it's very easy, as an example, uh, for us to look at, we have an electronic health record, so it's very easy for us to look at antibiotic prescriptions given per physician. Uh, and if you want to uh, standardize that on the number of patients uh, that somebody takes care of, that's great. But we, we, what, it, what is not necessary, I don't think, is to look at what the what the antibiotics were given for. And this is sort of a down and dirty technique because the majority of antibiotics that are probably given out in a general practice are for upper respiratory tract infections and not for cellulitis and things like that. Uh, so I think you could take a pretty crude look at amount of antibiotic prescriptions that are given and use that for the educational um, things that are needed. Some would call that counter-detailing, uh, to have meetings with physicians one-on-one or to pre- just present the data to them on their use of, in this case, antibiotics compared to other physicians that they practice with. Uh, we have a lot of those open conversations in our group, and I think it is generally made our uh, our total groups prescribing, and we're a group of nine now, our total group of pres- uh, groups prescribing much more conservative than it, than it was, uh, I would say, uh, seven years ago. And I'm really curious about other systematic uh, interventions that um, participants on the call have used to try to impact uh, prescribing or social interventions such as use of the media if we have public health folks that are out there. Jill, if, if anybody dials in and gets in queue, just interrupt us and and uh, we'll go to their call. Uh, one of the criticisms, uh, potential criticisms, uh, in is they use amoxicillin. Some people say that you might have been better off using azithromycin or amoxicillin, amoxicillin clavulonic okay. acid. Any uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, <clears throat> there's always the what-if question for all studies. You can only make sure science as to, you know, various uh, few variables as possible. Um, yeah, I mean, it is possible other antibiotics are more effective. However, I will say that for the three meta-analyses I know of, um, all three of them don't uh, find superiority of any one antibiotic over any other antibiotic that's been studied so far. So there's no convincing uh, front-runner from uh, when you look at the level of meta-analyses. Um, However, that said, there may be some antibiotics which are more likely in theory to work, and they'd be very interesting, um, I'm sure, to do more work with those. I don't know whether, for example, uh, quinolones, uh, fourth-generation quinolones, or um, macrolactones, or things which may be penetrate biofilms, or there may be different types of classes of antibiotics which may be more effective. But... At the moment, um, as far as the evidence is concerned, I'm not aware of any evidence-based preference. Uh, I can think of some theoretical reasons, but I can't think of any actual 
study details which would persuade me um, that any one class of antibiotic is better than any other from, from the reviews that have been done. And I'd right. be interested to know if other people have got views on that. One of the, uh, is there any conversation in the research community about looking at, uh, at the effect? I mean, I would, uh, today, based on where we are with both antibiotic overuse and emerging resistance and uh, cost issues, I would almost not even be interested in uh, the effect of shortened duration. Um, uh, I think that it's really, uh, uh, it's an effect, but I think it's a misguided effect. Well, the other thing that would underline that as well, Chuck, is that um, when you do get this one day's benefit in the symptom resolution, it's usually towards the end of the illness when the symptoms aren't so severe anyhow. So, right. so people tend to think, oh, I'm going to get a day's benefit now. Well, of course, antibiotics aren't going to work for several days if they're going to work at all, five days or something like that, in case of sinusitis. So... Um, you know, people think, well, I want an effect now, and they're not going to get an effect now. Yeah, and, and I absolutely agree with you. There's, there's a fairly small effect. Uh, if there is an effect, let's say there is, but it's a small one. But it's towards the end of the illness when people aren't quite so interested in a, in a day's difference of symptoms, which can probably be controlled with analgesics. Right. My, uh, my favorite intervention uh, here, clinical intervention, and my staff and fellow physicians give me a very hard time about it on a regular basis, is my favorite intervention for upper respiratory tract infections is exercise. Uh, yeah, people, people, people very much don't want to hear that. Uh, but in fact, where there is data, uh, exercise actually has had uh, more of a positive outcome than just about any intervention we have, I believe. Right, okay, well, I didn't know that one, but I'm interested to I'll redo my literature search on that and send yeah. that to you, and maybe that's yeah. an intervention you can test next. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> Jill, is there anybody else in queue? We have no further questions at this time. Okay. Um, yeah, I, you know, I... I uh, uh, the, the issue of exercise, I find, is a fascinating one because you have... Um, uh, these things get passed down from generation to generation because Grandma told uh, Mom that uh, she's supposed to rest when uh, when uh, she has uh, an you know an illness, a common illness like this. So Mom tells us that it's about bed rest and chicken soup, yeah. uh, and it, when in fact there's there's no data to support uh, support those interventions. And when I've gone and done done the research on exercise, which is just something I happen to be very interested in, uh, yeah. I find that it, where there is any evidence at all, it is it is towards the positive and, uh, and not towards the negative. So I certainly wouldn't encourage somebody to go out and run a marathon, uh, but I would encourage them to get back to the gym. And if, if they are an exerciser, I think that uh, we have a, a lot of misguided information that rest makes you better. And I think for exercisers, the, la the lack of exercise based on this common uh, recommendation makes them feel both mentally, uh, psychologically, and physically worse uh, and, and almost incapacitates them. Life is not, not much more than a psychological conversation or negotiation with ourselves. Yeah, quite. <laughs> and when we stop exercising, you begin to lose that negotiation. You begin to, you begin to describe yourself as being sick. And I try to encourage everybody in our practice and our patients not to think of this as being an illness, not yeah. to think of themselves as being sick, because it, it, it allows them to sort of think of themselves as being incapacitated. Uh, I, I, agree, I agree with that. We had a, a great guy who worked with us many years ago, a chap called Bruce Thomas, um, 
who's retired now, but he did a, um, an article in The Lancet, is there any proof in being, uh, any point in being positive? And he found if he did a positive consultation, as a, saying, you know, you'll get telling people what they got and how, you know, they get better soon, they, they did get better soon compared to, I really don't know what you've got and uh, how long it's going to take. So I, I think probably, uh, you know, the psychology of exercise as well in, in encouraging a positive um, approach to life, um, I really do, I, I do think it works. It may be placebo, I don't know what, how the effect's mediated, but I, uh, I do think that uh, it's much better to be positive about your message Right. Um, even if it is that something doesn't work, uh, yeah. then it is just just having a sort of um, a sort of negative falling into the you know oblivion sort of response to it. Right. Yeah. And I think you know exercise has got very good theoretical uh, uh, sort of basis in terms of positive effects on the immune system. Now, whether that has an effect day by day, who knows? But it has that effect, and it certainly promotes nasal drainage and. And other things well, like yes, that. it shrinks the lining of the nose, doesn't it? The sympathetic system, so it will actually improve osteopatency of the sinus. Absolutely, for the yeah. physiological reasons why the sinuses should drain a little bit better, right. and so on. Right, yeah. and it is it is impressive as powerful as an intervention of, as exercise is in terms of depression and uh, other uh, other even acute illnesses like this. How little it's studied, primarily because there's not drug company money behind studying it. But it would be an interesting thing to begin talking with your group about to see if there's a, a, a possible intervention uh, that could be studied there. One other thing that we try to do uh, systematically is we have a, an electronic newsletter that, in fact, goes out to all of our patients uh, once a month. And we actually try to um, uh, actively educate them uh, about many, many things. Upper respiratory tract infections is one of them that we have in our newsletter uh, every October and trying to, again, um, uh, change the way that they think about themselves and illness and what the appropriate course is if they have an upper respiratory tract infection. And that's another systematic intervention, systematized intervention that we use. Uh, we have not studied it to, to see what the real effect is. Uh, but I think that a multi-pronged strategy like that, both aimed at the physicians to communicate with them about what's appropriate to your patient population and, and even to your whole community about what's appropriate is is really effective. Can yeah, what, the one study that's happening in Cardiff here in, uh, in Wales in the United Kingdom is um, they have, um, the doctors have their prescribing data fed back to them um, so they know how much antibiotics they're prescribing. But in, in this study they're getting the antibiotic resistance rates uh, of their samples that they send off to the uh, laboratory. So they're getting their individual um, antibiotic resistance rates. So the more they prescribe antibiotics and the, 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 the linking of that with uh, increased antibiotic resistance and feeding back that information, the, the people who are running this trial in Cardiff think that that is it's quite powerful for the doctors to know that if they prescribe more, then it will even affect their local antibiotic, you know, in their actual community, their antibiotic resistance. Right, right. And, and they're looking at whether that will be an effective means of um, reducing, um, reducing prescribing when you can see that ha actually happening in your own practice, in your right. own, with your own patients. Mm. Well, um, 
As we close, any thoughts on what further research is uh, is needed in this area? Uh, in addition to research, in addition to uh, understanding the effective exercise on acute respiratory tract. <laughs> well, that's got to be number one. Jack. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd say um, that there's still scope for maybe looking. I think maybe near patient tests would be very useful if we could target subgroups that would respond to antibiotics. I think that would be a fantastic breakthrough. But at the moment. I don't, you know, I think that would be excellent. Um, I think looking at other methods or the types of treatment, maybe antibiotics just aren't the answer all the time and looking for other ways of trying to treat sinusitis is, is, is important. Um, I think a really big study looking at risk of complications would be would be interesting and important too if, if people do finally get uh, unaddicted from, you know, lose their addiction to antibiotics. But I, I, I suspect that's still a long way off despite, um, despite current, current work. I think it's, it's, it's a major sea change needed uh, to get people um, to, um, to be taking so few antibiotics that we, that we start to get concerned about complications. But I think complications is something for the future um, for people to look at. What are the predictors of complications? Well, uh, Jill, anybody in queue? Once again, as a reminder, if there are any further questions or comments, please press star, then one, on your touchtone phone at this time. We are towards the end of the call. Uh, I think that you've given us a lot of good things. There are no more questions at this time. Great, thank you. Uh, uh, you know, I think you've given us a lot of uh, great things to think about. I came away with some real to-dos in this regard. We've discussed uh, system interventions uh, such as uh, thinking about ways to message our patient population, uh, helping our clinicians to communicate differently uh, to patients about uh, antibiotics and upper respiratory tract infections, leveraging things that are other things going on in our community, such as the MRSA uh, challenge that we all face, uh, using uh, newspaper and other media to impact how people uh, perceive themselves and, uh, and how they manage these illnesses at home. Um, so those are, I think, uh, a great list of things that come out of your article, and I really appreciate the time to chat with you. I'd like to thank Dr. Williamson for his participation on the call today and for pro providing this enlightened discussion. Uh, thank each of you for joining us as well. In the future, please do join us uh, every month for Author in the Room, and please come with your questions or comments. I love having conversations with the authors, but I'd love to get comments and questions from our participants as well. Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place, again, on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place Wednesday, February 20th, with Dr. Mark Pletcher discussing the article, Opioid Prescribing by Race-Ethnicity, appearing in uh, the uh, January 2nd issue of JAMA. Um, Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It's an interactive conference call designed to help accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Williamson, and thanks to each of you for being a part of Author in the Room. Good day.